Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and with me, as always, are fellow Associate Editors, Barry Bettino and Kevin Drewley. Welcome to December, guys. Thank you, Alan. Warm winter greetings to you. Thank you, Alan. Same to you. Well, thank you all for joining us on this 46th episode in our podcast history. We know that many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession. We want to hear more about it for our My Story feature in our magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth.nsc.org. To view past My Story entries and catch up on all the news from around the safety world, visit our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's podcast, Kevin will discuss his feature on workplace violence in our deep dive segment. We'll also be joined by Atanu Das to talk about safety data sheets in our five questions with interview. And we'll all share lessons from this month in what else? The What Do We Learn segment. Is everybody ready? Let's go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we examine a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health magazine, and we call that our deep dive segment. In our December issue, Kevin has a follow-up story about a topic that impacts employers, workers, and safety professionals, workplace violence. In speaking with safety and health experts, Kevin shares their thoughts on the value of preparedness and how honest conversations can help safety pros understand worker concerns about serious topics, such as active shooter drills. Kevin, could you please share some of the valuable insights you learned in this deep dive? Thank you, Barry Bottino, for that kind introduction. As mentioned, this feature is the second installment of a two-part series. And again, the insights and the expertise of Mike Britt and Lev Proberski really make it go. Mike is the co-owner of Virginia-based Sentinel Security Group, and Lev is Senior Director of Safety and Security for Pepsi National Brands. Their names may sound familiar outside of this Safety and Health series, as both have delivered seminars on workplace violence at past NSC Safety Congress and Expo events. Whereas Part 1, which was published in May, had focused on what to know about warning signs of workplace violence, Part 2 really provides employers and workers with ideas and best practices for acting during potential workplace violence or active shooter scenarios. A key starting point really is preparedness. Organizations that prepare and practice a workplace violence response plan can instill a greater sense of control during these situations. Using Bureau of Labor Statistics data, there were 481 workplace homicides in 2021, and that was an increase of 22.7% from 2020. What are some steps workplaces can take to be prepared and start forming a workplace violence response plan? As Mike Britt puts it, he says, quote, if you know your risks, you can better plan for a response, unquote. So it really starts with assessing that immediate work area as the first step to be mindful of where your exits are, where you sit in relation to them, and also where you might hide from or barricade a possible perpetrator. Really, a lot of these concepts shouldn't be foreign either, because as Lev points out, the evacuation protocol isn't simply related to workplace violence. It ties in with OSHA and the workplace requirements for emergency exit routes. Some other questions to consider to help keep you safe include, where would you run? How far would you have to go? Are there stairs? Are you sure that doors will be unlocked? Will hallways be blocked during a crisis event? So from there, you can start to think about the larger layout of the building when it comes to evaluating a vulnerable area. One example that an expert gave in the story was a break room that houses 30 workers at 1030 every morning. So that reality might 
be just that, just something simple and basic to the worker at face value, but such information to a, a potential perpetrator can really be used to his or her advantage. So that's not to suggest that a workplace should stagger a break time or anything of that sort. It, again, just offers some more food for thought when you're looking at workplaces more strategically. Some additional advice to that end, and a lot of this might actually be more for visualizing than practicing, that's to take stock of what Britt calls, quote, improvised weapons in the workplace. We'll talk shortly about when and how to attempt to disengage a shooter, but one way is to use machinery, laptops, keyboards, monitors, and office equipment as a means to disarm a gunman. Experts recommend practicing facility evacuations or simulated active shooter protocol in advance and giving workers and local law enforcement notice that these practices or drills are going to be coming. This gives you uh, the chance to review the response plan and to really put it into action, give it a, a dry run. In the story, on a related note, Lev discusses a past training session in which workers had resolved to overturn a large conference room table to keep a simulated gunman out. But when they tried to attempt this, they soon discovered that the table was in fact bolted to the ground. So that's something that you want to know ahead of time, not in the throes of a potential crisis situation. Kevin, workplaces often teach the run-hide-fight method during active shooter training. Is that still the recognized approach? That is an important question. The answer is yes, but with some conditions. It's been about a decade since the run-hide-fight response entered the scene, and it was developed in 2012 by the city of Houston in partnership with the Department of Homeland Security. What Mike and Lev and others have observed, though, is that over time, this run-hide fight has often been interpreted as simply a linear mode or model. And because of all the variables, that likely is not the best course of action. And here's a quote from Mike Britt that explains why. Mike says, quote, it does not account for the situational basis, where you are in direct correlation to that threat. If I walk out of a door and a gunman puts a gun to my chest, do I have the ability to run? Probably not. Do I have the ability to hide? Probably not. My best option at that point is to defend myself. Conversely, if you hear gunshots down the hall, is it a wise idea just to run out of the office? No. It may be the best option based on the situation to lock the doors, to barricade and get low, get quiet, turn the lights off and shelter in place, unquote. Lev Proberski advises employers to really going from there, just to have the honest conversations with workers during workplace violence and active shooter training. Let them know that you're not trying to make them feel uncomfortable by discussing these things, that the goal simply is to have them assess that if run, hide, and fight are your three options in whichever order is best, you just want to look at, honestly, how well that you can do each of these things. Attempting to disengage the shooter really should be considered as a last resort. Whatever the scenario, it's about pre-planning and practicing that response to these possible acts of violence so you can increase workers' awareness and their confidence should a situation arise. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your work on this story. To read this feature, as well as other news from around the safety world, please pick up the December issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional has a unique story. So, what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. You can share your safety origin story by sending a submission to safehealth at nsc.org.
Every day in industries around the globe, workers handle a variety of chemicals. So how can workers in your industry stay safe? One simple yet misunderstood tool is a safety data sheet. And with us to talk about the ins and outs of safety data sheets is Atanu Das, the owner of MSDS Writer, a consulting company that researches, authors, and updates OSHA-compliant safety data sheets and worldwide equivalents. Atanu is also a fellow of the Institute of Hazardous Materials Management. Atanu, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be on your podcast. During the OSHA Top 10 Most Frequently Stated Standards presentation at our NSC Safety Congress and Expo in October, hazard communication came in at number two on that list. Could you explain to our audience the role of safety data sheets in hazard communication? Along with container labels, the safety data sheets are the main source for conveying potential dangers associated with the chemical. A chemical user reading the safety data sheet should be able to identify the chemical name, matching the label, what happens if they are exposed to that in like an accident or an incident when they're using it, as well as how to safely handle, store it, and as well as what to do in an emergency. So it it provides a very big multifunction piece in that communications of hazard. In 2012, SDS has underwent a change to a 16-section format. How has this helped make safety data sheets better? Maybe a lot of people have not realized, actually, that 16-section format was actually first proposed by the American National Standards Institute all the way back in 1993 to standardize the safety data sheet. So at, before that time, it was, a, it was a basically a wild west of formats. At the time, OSHA had kind of a recommended format that they used. It was like eight sections, sometimes seven. It's, it, they were all kind of non-mandatory. So we saw a big plethora of craziness when it came to SDSs and how good they were at conveying the knowledge that we needed that to do. The format was eventually adopted worldwide, that ANSI format and actually incorporated into the globally harmonized system standard, which was further adopted in 2012 by OSHA. The way the globally harmonized system standard works is provides kind of a, a big catalog or a, a menu of items to use, and countries that have already existing standards and formats in place can adopt it based on their needs. OSHA formally adopted it in 2012. So what that did is it provided a consistent format, which now makes it easier for safety data sheet users to know where to find the relevant information, no matter what country the chemical is in. For instance, you'll always know to go to section two to find relevant information on the physical or health hazards associated with the chemical. Knowing that you have a standardized format, 16 sections, where to go to, what sections actually makes these sheets much better and easier to use. How do safety data sheets help ensure that workers stay safe from chemicals on the job? In addition to what I spoke earlier about conveying potential exposures, emergency and handling procedures, safety data sheets are also used to identify the names of the chemicals used to make a product. Medical personnel can use this information to actually provide the right treatment to the exposed worker when they're involved in an accident. Also, the SDS identifies the proper workplace hygiene 
and personal protective equipment that's used to minimize exposure during use. So it's important that training workers on how to properly read and especially understand the SDS, it's essential for a compliant hazard communication program. What are some common mistakes that safety professionals and employers make with safety data sheets? There's a lot of them. I think one of the main ones is it's a failure to update or have the correct safety data sheets for the chemicals in the workplace, inadequate or outdated training, because you don't always know that are your workers actually understanding what they do with that information and how it relates to the actual chemicals that they're using in the workplace, as well as having limited or no access to the SDSs in the workplace. One other thing that we're seeing here is a lot of employers may ignore the worker language barriers that an employee may have and may not be speaking English as their first primary language. So OSHA does require you to provide SDSs and other hazard communication translated into the primary language of the worker. So these are some of the mistakes we're seeing, as well as from the authoring perspective, which I'm very familiar with. There may be limitations on the accuracy of the chemical and toxicity data that's used to create the sheet to begin with. So you may be starting off with an inconsistent or incorrect safety data sheet that ultimately your end user is going to rely on. OSHA's HASCOM standard requires safety data sheets to be readily accessible to employees during each work shift and in their work area. In what ways can that readily accessible portion be met? The easiest way to provide the access would be to have actual hard copies of all the relevant safety data sheets at or near the workstation. Typically, this is done using your old-fashioned three-ring binder, you know, with paper copies used in there and accessible to the worker. The challenge with this method is to always make sure that the binder is updated whenever a new chemical is introduced to the workplace or when a supplier has new SDSs for already existing products. For workplaces that are paperless, an electronic database of chemical safety data sheets, which workers can access through a computer or a other handheld device is also a way to comply with ready access. And by the way, OSHA over the years has really determined, defined kind of ready access as immediate access. So it's always important to know what does that really mean? In an emergency situation, if you have a power blackout, you got to make sure that your worker has the access to that information. What we see here is there are many data vendors that offer employers this service using like a subscription-based model. So it has an added benefit of having automatic inventory updates as well. It's one less headache that the employer has to worry about provided the service is updating your sheets regularly. OSHA does warn that the electronic access to the safety data sheet should not be hindered and does require you to have a suitable backup in case of power blackout. We appreciate you sharing your insights with us, Atanu. If our listeners want to find out more, are there resources out there about safety data sheets that you would recommend? Yes, absolutely. So OSHA is a very good place to begin with. They have excellent fact sheets, some quick cards and other learning resources, even for the employers, the the workplaces, just handling as much as they can in plain English to explain the regulations they do. If this is a hard problem to crack, I would even recommend employers to not be 
shy about even calling OSHA because OSHA is there to help. I know nobody necessarily wants to talk to their agency and feel like, you know, somebody's going to come and knock on my door because I made a phone call, but that's not necessarily true. OSHA is actually there to help you. You can even do it anonymously. You could ask them, you know, any question you want about any regulatory issue you have. So I would, I would highly recommend doing that. There are many organizations. I belong to one called the Society for Chemical Hazard Communication. It's a great resource. Their site is open to the public. We have an alliance with OSHA. In fact, to get communication resources out and about, we have many fact sheets available that we work in conjunction with OSHA on just this very topic. It's all things hazard communication. So schc.org is one site to visit. Some great resources are out there. Just do a quick search. You'll find very good resources. Great. Well, Atani, we, we thank you so much for sharing those resources with us. And we really appreciate you joining us on the safe side this month. Thank you. Thank you again. It, it's been a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad I could disseminate some excellent resources and topics for you. The top 10 violations every year. It's frustrating to hear, but I'm, I'm happy to help communicate wherever I can. As we approach the end of this episode, it's about that time to discuss what we've learned in the past month, whether on the job or off. And to get things started, I will talk about for the second time in less than four years, the National Labor Relations Board has changed its definition of a joint employer. There was a final rule published on October 27th that where NLRB states that it's returning to its previous definition of a joint employer when two or more entities, quote unquote, share or co-determine one or more of an employee's essential terms and conditions of employment. And one of those includes worker safety and health. And there's a list of others under on a story on our website. And the NLRB says the 2023 rule more faithfully grounds the joint employer standard in established common law agency principles. And the NLRB chair, Lauren McFerrin, says the board will still determine on a case-by-case basis whether two or more employees meet the joint employer standard. Uh, Kevin, what about you? I learned a few things that were in relation to construction and preventing falls among workers who are operating on roofs. There are two new resources from CPWR, and that's the Center for Construction Research and Training. I know we write and talk of it often and have had some guests from CPWR, but they recently put out a couple of resources that, again, are geared toward preventing roofer falls. There's one resource that's just called Roofing Safety for Construction Workers, and that's in English and Spanish, and just, again, gets to kind of some of the basics, just saying that according to BLS data, that one out of 10 fatal slips, trips, and falls involve roofers, and three out of five roofers overall are Hispanic. There's things that the organization is is reminding us of, or workers of, beginning with eliminating or minimizing fall hazards during job planning when possible. Also providing workers and with the proper tools and safety equipment so they can safely complete the tasks and to train workers on inspection and the use of safety equipment and a language they understand. The second resource, there's can be inclement weather year-round, but certainly the winter brings different kinds. It can be freezing rain or sleet or snow. So this other resource is dealing more with, with weather hazards and just guidance on, on working safely in inclement weather, making sure workers are trained on fall protection, wearing the proper PPE, monitoring the weather conditions before work begins and throughout the day. As you begin work, just those pre-job inspections, looking for icy, wet, or slippery conditions before the work starts and things of that sort. 
Barry, how about you? What did you learn? Well, I'm going to stay on construction area of things, but I'm going to talk a little bit about road construction. And the news I'm going to share will not be news to my colleague, Kevin, who is a native of Missouri. The state of Missouri is about to kick off the Improve I-70 project. And I-70 runs from St. Louis to Kansas City across the entire state. And so what the University of Missouri has done is they have started a work zone safety center of excellence. And I am proud to say I have two Mizzou grads on this podcast with me, Kevin and Alan. M-I-Z. Z-O-U. I'm sure you're very proud of the Tigers at this point. (laughs) (laughs) So what the University of Missouri is doing is they have a long history of road construction research. What they're doing is they are working with a number of different groups, and they're going to attempt to improve safety in work zones in a number of ways. What I learned from the folks at the University of Missouri is that's going to start with something very basic, such as portable rumble strips, all the way to new technologies. And that's going to include early detection and warning systems that are going to involve machine learning and AI, for example. They're going to involve cameras monitoring traffic and sending real-time data on a vehicle's speed and angle of approach just to make sure that those vehicles are not entering a work zone. It's pretty fascinating. So folks can read that story on safetyandhealthmagazine.com. And that, again, is the University of Missouri and their Missouri Work Zone Safety Center of Excellence. Now it's our listeners' turn. Is there something important that you learned this month? Please share it with us via email at safehealthatnsc.org. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable, and we appreciate you spending just a bit of it with us each month. We encourage you to visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash podcasts to check out all of our past podcast episodes. That includes episode number 24, in which we discuss how an OSHA ETS works, along with ladder safety, another one of those top 10 most cited standards. We'd also appreciate you rating, reviewing, or spreading the word about this podcast. To find stories such as Kevin's feature on workplace violence preparedness and best practices, plus the latest news from around the safety world, check us out at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you, Steve. And a big thank you to all of our NSC colleagues behind the scenes who make this podcast go. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side.